Hey, thanks for listening to the Journey Podcast. We're glad you're here. Journey exists to engage people in the process of knowing Jesus Christ. We pray that this podcast engages you and encourages you to become more like Him. Hey, my name is Alan. Happy Mother's Day. Thanks for being here, moms. We wouldn't be here without you. Like literally, we wouldn't be here without you. But we're glad you're here with us. If you're our guest, thanks for coming today. Um, We are in a series that we have been calling Recalculate. And we started it last week. um, And when Patrick and Caleb spoke for this last week about how we can recalibrate our core values. And what we mean by that is we have four core values at our church um, that if you are new to our church, this is a great time to be here. If you weren't here last week, you can go to YouTube and check it out. But also be with us for these next couple of weeks about how our core values can be recalculated for the times that we're living in. Um, We're not necessarily changing, in fact, we're not changing our core values at all, but we're seeing where we're at in this time and space and energy and place right now and see how we need to recalculate what we believe and how we are showing that to our world and to to our church. And so last week we talked about that we surrender to God's word and its life-changing power. And, And Pat and Caleb did a great job last week of doing that for us. In fact, Patrick made a comment towards the end of his message that I was like, Well, that's a great segue into what we're talking about today. He finished last week with this. He said, when we apply God's word to our lives, we love people differently. I was like, well, yep, exactly where we're going today. Because our second core value is we love our neighbors and we welcome them home. So I was like, man, Pat, good job taking us from last week to this week about how we're going to talk about this. And so in a few minutes, Pastor Bible will come up here and talk the main portion of the message. But I want to talk to us for a couple of moments about a few key words in that phrasing, in that we love our neighbors, we welcome them home. So the first word I want to talk about today is, actually not the word, I want to tell you this. How many of you have ever thought about a welcome mat? Do you, know, you ever thought about where a welcome mat came from? I haven't until this week when I was working on this little portion of the message, but welcome mats date back like 6,000 years where they would use welcome mats and doormats just to simply wipe off their dirty feet before going into someone's dwelling or habitat. In fact, archaeologists have found them all over in front of fire pits and everything where people just come and clean their feet off before that. And the homeowner, the, the person who owned the home was telling that welcomed guest, hey, you're welcome here. You're valued here. Clean your feet off. Come on in and enjoy time together. And so we see that, Jesus, that those things are happening early 6,000 years ago. Well, for us, we want to welcome our neighbors home to our church. And so a few words I want to talk about today is the first one is neighbor. What do you think about when you think about the word neighbor? When Jesus brought the word neighbor up, he had the people of that times kind of scratching their head because Jesus was incorporating all kinds of people and including all kinds of people into his idea of what a neighbor is. And so we're gonna do that. So just a couple of questions for you to start off. You don't wanna answer these out loud, okay? Just to yourself. You may chuckle or something in a moment. So what do you think about when you think about the word neighbor? Do you have any neighbors? I live in a neighborhood. Maybe some of you don't live in a neighborhood. You live miles away from someone. Your next door neighbor is at least a mile away. Do you like them? I hear some of you. Do you know them? Are they a source of help? Or are they a source of frustration? Let me ask some better questions. Do they like you? Do they know you? Are you a source of help? Or are you a source of frustration? In Jesus' most famous sermon, we find it in Matthew chapter 5 through 7. Jesus talks on the Sermon on the Mount for a long time. In fact, we've done a series on it a couple years ago now. But he takes time in that sermon to talk about neighbors and how we should look at our neighbors. And here's what he says in Matthew chapter 5, verses 43 through 47. You'll see it on the screens. He says this, You have heard that it, is, it was said, Love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you this, love your enemies. And pray for those who persecute you. In this way, you show that you are children of your Father in heaven. He makes his sun rise on people whether they are good or evil. He lets rain fall on them whether they are just or unjust. And if you love those that love you, do you deserve a reward? Even the tax collectors do that. Are you doing anything remarkable if you welcome only your friends? Everyone does that. 
Wow. Jesus kind of got straight to the point here in the Sermon on the Mount that it's not about just the rules or just the laws that we have to follow, right? Moms, you know this. You've watched your kids just obey what you said, but you could tell in their heart they were not doing what you were telling them to do in their heart. Jesus was getting to the point and to their hearts going, hey, we have to love our neighbors. We say we love them. You may obey the rules, but hey, I'm going to tell you, I'm making it stepping up a game. You have to love your enemies, because everybody will love somebody that loves them. We need to love people who may not necessarily love us. In Luke chapter 10, we hear the story of the Good Samaritan. Maybe you're familiar with it. If you've been in church for a long time, it's the story, it's the epitome of someone being a good neighbor. The Samaritan, who if you don't know, in that time was not looked good upon. He was not a favorable person. There was the two religious leaders who actually walked by the person who was in need. The Samaritan was the good one who stopped had compassion, took time, came in contact with, and helped, even gave money towards helping someone in need. And Jesus is saying, look, even the Samaritans are doing this. How much more should we be doing this? So what neighbor is God calling you to love? Maybe it's not your literal neighbor. Maybe you have great neighbors. I have great neighbors. Maybe it's a coworker or a teammate or a family member who God's put you in contact with that he's asking you to love them, even when they don't love you. Now, how about the next word? The next word we're going to look at in our, in our little phrasing is home. I don't know what you think about when you think of home. Maybe you've had a great home experience. Maybe you haven't had a great home experience. Any of you haven't had a great home experience, you know what a home should look like, right? In the Bible, in the first chapter of the book of the whole Bible, in Genesis chapter 1 and 2, Jesus, or God creates a home for Adam and Eve, and then they mess it up. And in fact, at the end of the Bible in Revelation, Jesus comes back and prepares a home for us. The idea of home is in our hearts, but yet we live in a time, time frame now where it's kind of messed up. But we at least know what home should be. Home should be a place where people feel welcome, where there's refuge, where there's a place of peace. It's a place of belonging. We want our church to feel like a home. We love when we hear in, in different situations where, man, journey just feels like home. Yes, that's what we want. But we need your help to do that. We can't do it by ourselves. We can't do it just individually. We want journey to be a place that feels like home. Before I got to journey, there was even times a phrase that journey is always used in this time. And it's this phrase, you probably heard it. We're the perfect church for imperfect people. Because we know we're all imperfect. I'm imperfect. Every person that comes on the stage is imperfect. Everybody sitting out here is imperfect. But we want to be the perfect church for people who know that they're messed up, who know that they need to be rescued, who know that they need Jesus' love. So we want home. We want to welcome our neighbors home. I want you to turn with me to John chapter 13. In John chapter 13, maybe you can find it on your phone or you can find it in your Bible if you brought one with you. The entire chapter of John 13 is a huge thing that's going on. Jesus knows his life and his time of crucifixion is coming. In fact, the verses first, first off start saying that he has loved his disciples to the end, to the end. And yet he knows what's getting ready to happen is betrayal. And yet he does something remarkable in John chapter 13. He washes his disciples' feet. In fact, he washes two disciples' feet who are going to betray him very soon. But yet he washes his feet. Jesus becomes that welcome mat in that moment to clean the feet, to let those know that they belong to him and can belong to him. And he tells us in John chapter 13 to do the same thing. He set the example for us. But the verse I want us to look at in John chapter 13 kind of comes right towards the end. John chapter 13, verse 35. And I'd like for you to read along with us. It says this, by this, all people will know that you're my disciples, that you have, what's that word? Love for one another. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you that you set the example for us of love, that we can love our neighbors and welcome them home. The neighbor that's frustrating, the neighbor that makes it very difficult, or the neighbor that we love and does anything for us, that God, all are welcome to be your disciple. And it's our job as a church and as Christians 
to welcome our neighbors, to welcome them home and to love them. So God, thank you that you first loved us. Thank you that while we were still sinners, you died for us. And God, allow us to show that to those around us. In your son's name we pray, amen. I want you to read this quote with me and just let it rest for a second. Between the Christianity of this land and the Christianity of Christ, I recognize the widest possible difference. Let me read that again. Between the Christianity of this land and the Christianity of Christ, I recognize the widest possible difference. Anybody know who said that quote? When I first heard it a couple weeks ago, I was at a conference, and I've never heard it before. And I didn't realize because I wasn't really paying attention that it wasn't the person that was the communicator saying it. It was actually, he was quoting somebody else. And I thought, well, that had to come from Andy Stanley. I mean, that just sounds like Andy Stanley, doesn't it? If you don't know who Andy Stanley is, pastor of a very large church in Atlanta, he's quoted in everything. I was like, man, that's a great statement. And I got to thinking, well, maybe it's, you know, it's Rick Warren. He's, he's big into culture and helping us lean into the culture. And then I thought, maybe it's one of the new young guns. Maybe it's like a Stephen Furtick or somebody. And then I thought, well, maybe it's my favorite because I can kind of see TDJ say, oh, you know. It was Frederick Douglass in 1845. Long before the cultural shift that's been happening over the last couple of years, long before the the problems and the struggles that we're seeing in our world, long before Facebook and Twitter and all the, long before that, there was a problem. Literally what he was saying was that the church needed to be recalculated even way back then. That there was some things wrong culturally. There was some things wrong in the church that had to get right, that Christianity, faith, uh, followers of Jesus were different than what the church should be. They were seeing a, a huge difference between them and Jesus. And I thought about a moment that happened to me about three weeks ago. I was down in Florida and I was going to try to go my Osceola turkey hunt. And so I'm, I'm going down there and my wife had sent me because I wasn't going to stay in Palatka. I was going to stay in St. August this time. She sent me the address for the Hampton that's in St. Augustine. And I was excited because my wife was kind of taking care of me and I, I don't do great on directions. And so I get all the way down there. It's about 9.30 or 10 o'clock at night. I, it's pitch black. And this direction has me going down a dirt road. And I'm going past the dirt road and this is exactly what it said. Your destination is on the right. And I'm like, my destination is not on the right. My destination is a swamp right there. And so I went down to the end of the road and it said recalculating. So it turned me around and it said, your destination is now on your left. And all I'm looking at is swamp. And I'm going, something is definitely missing here. There's a, there's a problem with this. It needs to be, re so I, I go all the way out and, and it says recalculating. And it tells me, I'm like, listen, I, I, I've not been to every Hampton Inn, um, but I know what they kind of look like. That's, that's not it. And so... I texted my wife and, um, did you ever have that moment where you can almost in a text sense the anxiety and the fear and the frustration? And so I'm like, baby, you have sent me on a wild goose. Like I am not where I'm supposed to be. She goes, well, I copied it right off their address, right off their website. So then about five minutes later, I get, I'm sorry. I left off two numbers <laughs> that were pivotal in the address. So then when we put the two numbers in, and I said this story, I'm not, she was in the first service, she was sitting there laughing, it was funny, we're good. I called her up, she could sense the fearing anxiety in my voice because I don't do lost real well. And so I finally got to my destination and, and literally had me come off of I-95, 35 miles before I was supposed to get off of I-95 to a whole nother address. So I was 35 miles out of the way. So I get there about 10.30 and love you, babe. Let's pray together, you know, all that kind of stuff. And Jesus, forgive her for her sins. <laughs> for she knows, well, she does know now what she did, but she didn't know at the time. And then I go to the, the bedroom and I'm sitting there and it was at that moment right there that God kind of grabbed me by the shoulders and said, that recalculating is what the church needs. Like, the church of 2022 is pretty screwed up. We can't get along with each other. We can't get along with other denominations. Last week, a whole denomination that's one of the oldest in our country split in half over a divisive moment. 
we need a recalculation, y'all. And see, a lot of people think that it's just today. It's just 2022. It's just, some people even feel like it's just in the last couple of years because of racial tension and Black Lives Matters and this thing over here happens and Republican, Democrat and Biden and all that. You know, something that's been going on for thousands of years. It is not something that just happened overnight. As a matter of fact, 2,000 years ago, right after the greatest moment, and we talked about this a couple of weeks ago, Easter Sunday, the greatest moment that's ever, it's, it changed culture. Jesus' resurrection changed everything. It changed the way we do culture. It changed the way we do art. It changed the way we do music. It changed the way we do our calendar. It changed the way, it, it changes everything. Right after that moment, and then there's a, another great moment. It's in Acts chapter one, uh, the day of Pentecost. And the day of Pentecost, and don't get wrapped up in all the theology of it right now, but the day of Pentecost, God brings the church back together. They'd have been separated from the Tower of Babel where they couldn't understand each other. Now, all of a sudden, they're all understanding each other in their own languages. God's unifying the church, the, the day of Pentecost, one of the greatest moments in the church. And then there was a, a, just the a driving force of the church to go change the world. And, and the Bible says they were meeting in people's homes and they were doing all these different things. And there's a key phrase that says, many were added to them daily. The church was at its best. I don't know what you, like, this is not church at its best. That was church at its best. Since then, we've been trying to get back to that moment. This all happens, Acts chapter one, Acts chapter two. And then in Acts chapter 15, do y'all know what happens in Acts chapter 15? The church is great. The church is gathering and they have what's called the Council of Jerusalem, which is the first church business meeting. Oh my gosh. If you want to know why we don't do church business meetings, read the whole entire chapter of Acts chapter 15 because everything is about to get screwed up. Uh, things were great. Pentecost was happening. There was money. I mean, all the people were coming and all of a sudden they're going to stop it and they're going to argue, not over theology. They're going to, they're going to argue about outward appearance of somebody specifically the Gentiles that were coming to know Jesus, the ones that God literally told Peter to chase after. Now the Jewish believers and the Gentile believers are in conflict because the Gentiles, in their words, were not doing the same exact things that they were doing. Let's read it a little bit. In Acts chapter 15, verse four. When they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church. They were some of the apostles uh, and the apostles of the elders. They declared all that God had done with them. But but, but some believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees rose up and said, it is necessary to circumcise them in order for them to keep the law of Moses. That was the argument at the church business meeting. Oh my God, how far left did we go? Like how far, like that's what we're gonna talk about. We're not gonna talk about all the lives that have been changed, where we're gonna put them. We need a bigger building. You know, are we preaching this? We're gonna talk about circumcision. Peter's furious at this point, but he's just being quiet. So the apostles and the elders were gathered together to consider this matter. And after there had been much debate, Peter stood up and said to them, brothers, you know that in the early days, God made a choice among you that by my mouth, the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. Now, if you don't know the story, let me kind of just push pause on this. And I'm gonna get back to that. I think it's first, make sure I get back to seven or eight. There was a moment, do you remember the dream that Peter had where a big blanket came out of the sky, a big linen came out of the sky and it was all kinds of animals, clean and unclean. And, 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 and literally the angel of the Lord says, which I believe was Jesus by the spirit speaking to Peter going, go eat, eat, eat. And he goes, I can't eat anything that's unclean. And, and, the, and the voice says to him, don't you call what, don't you call unclean what I've called clean. And at that moment, the revelation happened that he was talking about the Gentiles for years, the Gentiles weren't preached to. And God was giving and commissioning Peter, the apostle Peter, the job and responsibility of preaching to the Gentiles that they would know Jesus too. So that's who in this, who's in this crowd. It's Gentile and Jewish believers. And Peter goes, don't you remember? Don't you remember that moment? And verse eight says, if I can find verse eight, there it is. And God who knows their heart bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit just as he did us. And he made no distinction between us and them having cleansed their hearts by what? By what they wear, by what denomination they are. By the, by, 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 by the, by the, the, the translation of the scripture, whether they're a contemporary church model or, or a, a liturgical church. No, it says they know Jesus by one thing and it's by faith. Now, therefore, why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? I'm going to read verse 10 again, because I don't think we got this. Now, therefore, why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? You know what he just said? You're asking people to keep rules that you're not even keeping. Doesn't that sound like the church today? We walk in, you got to look a certain way, you got to act a certain way. We, we almost have the appearance in a lot of churches that church is for church people. 
And if you're not a church people, you're not welcome. Church is only for, and church, you know what? Church is for all people. And we're going to talk about this in a second, that we all have the same story. It just has a different ending. The story is almost identical. So now, therefore, why are you putting God to the test? Verse 11, but we believe that we have been saved through grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, just as they will. And all the assembly fell silent. I bet they fell silent. They were embarrassed at this point. They just got called out by the apostle Peter. And they listened to Barnabas now and Paul as they related what signs and wonders God had done through them among the Gentiles. And this is Peter's synopsis of this whole meeting. This is, this is the synopsis of, the, of Paul and Barnabas. And he says this, Therefore, my judgment is that we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God, but we should write to them to abstain, abstain by things that are polluted to idols, by sexual immorality and from what has been strangled and from blood. He's saying, listen, here is my observation. I'm going to say it in Bobby's terms, make it as easy as possible for the Gentile believers to know who Jesus is. And you know what's happened in the church for 2,000 years? We've made the simple complicated. Rules and regulations, and you've got to walk this aisle, you've got to fill this card out, you've got to go to this secret room. That's why week after week after week at the closing prayer, and I've been criticized for this. Why don't we stand up? Why don't we walk out? Because none of that is salvation. You know what salvation is? When this guy here gets connected with that guy there, when this relationship is good, you know what else happens? This relationship is fine. That when my relationship with Jesus Christ is where it's supposed to be, love your neighbor as yourself. You know, when this love is right, this love is right. That's the key word in this whole thing. You know what? We have two key assignments in this lifetime, okay? I'm gonna give it to you real, real quick. And real, two key assignments. And they're both out of the mouth of Christ. They're both scriptural. They're in red letters in the Bibles that I read. The first one is Matthew chapter 28, 18. It says, then Jesus came to them and said, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Watch, you've heard this, the great commission. Go there, and if you haven't, this is called the great commission. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you and behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. That's the great, that's the great commission. He is saying that we, we are God's plan to change this world. Somebody, somebody say amen to that. We are God's, we are God's plan to get, get the world, the relationship with creator. We're, we're his plan. The great commandment is the second one. This is the one we're talking about today. And we're going to Matthew chapter 23, teacher, what is the greatest commandment in the law? And he said to them, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And then he says, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. Now I want you to notice this. Both of them, the great commission and the great commanded are compelled by one thing. It's the word that we need to address that I don't think we understand. And it's the word love. I think we have a really, really, really poor definition in the world we love, uh, live in and what love is. Now, here's something interesting. Every book of the New Testament, except for one, has the word love in it. talks about the word love. And it's interesting, when I did this, I was kind of doing the study. Every book, so Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, you go all the way down to the book of Revelation, has the word. There's one that doesn't have it. You know what it is? It's the book of Acts. Because the book of Acts is the demonstration of that word constantly through the, uh, uh, every chapter. It's how do we love? How do we do this? How do we share Jesus? Galatians chapter five talks about it this way. For Christ Jesus, for in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working through love. Galatians chapter 5, 14, just a couple of verses later. For the whole law is fulfilled by one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself love. Now here's the deal. I don't know about you guys. I've been told enough times the definition of love and, I've, and I still don't think we get it, Okay. So, and I love Keith uh, Walton, our campus pastor down at Sherwood. He said something a couple years ago, a year or so ago, while I was listening to one of his messages down there. And he said this, he said, it's not so much what we read that's important, it's what we don't read sometimes. And I think sometimes we listen to the definition, but I want to tell us what's not in the definition in order for us to define what love is. You understand what I'm saying? Everybody good on that? Say, here, here's the first one. What love is not, love is not just a word that we use. So many people just think, oh, I love you. And they say the word, and that means... Listen, if I told my wife, Gina, if I told her that I love her and there wasn't corresponding actions, how long would she believe me? How long would she tell her if, if I said this and I did something else? And, and let me tell you, love is not loving things that can't love you back. Oh, I love that car. 
I love that house. I love that boat. It's funny, when my kids were growing up, um, I had the privilege, sarcastically said, of taking them out to buy cars. Oh, joy, joy. And I remember, I remember going to one car lot. I believe it was my oldest. She walks up to a red Ferrari. She had $100 to her name. I love that car. Daddy, I love that car. I want that car. Okay. You going to get it for me, Daddy? Nope. And I said, it was, a, it was a teaching lesson. Don't say you love things that can't love you back. That car doesn't come up and give you a hug when you walk in the house, does it? As a matter of fact, it's got a birthday every month that you got to pay for. Right? Now, I'm not saying you can't have a nice vehicle. I'm not saying any of that. Today is not on how you spend your money, but don't say you love things that can't love you back. And let me tell you what else. Love is not a feeling. There's lots of times I don't feel like loving, but I do because that's what God tells me to do. I love the way it says here in John chapter 21, verse 17. And we talked about this Easter Sunday. If you were here Easter Sunday, I talked about Peter and the reinstatement of Peter. And he said to uh, Jesus said to Peter three times, do you, do you love me? And it was the same answer. He was asking, he goes, yeah, yeah, you know, I thought he said, he said to them the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved because actually he said he was upset because he said to him the third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. And then Jesus goes, well, then feed my sheep. He said, don't, just don't tell me. Let me, corresponding actions. Do, do something. Show me that you love me. Show me that, 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 that this reinstatement was worth you know, going through. Tell, show me something. Let me tell you something else. Love is not an option. If we're supposed to be like Christ, I love it. The church, we want to be like Jesus. Okay, love. And we want to be like Jesus. He flipped tables over one time. He loved all the time. And love is not a new idea. I love it. I had an opportunity a couple of weeks ago to get together with some young leaders. And I was sitting there and they were like, we're going to start a new movement. Love this, love that, love. And it was like, oh, we're going to love does. Love, love, love is this. You know, I'm like, shut up. In Jesus' name. And the reason being is love is not something new. Love is not a t-shirt. Love is not, love is something that God teaches from as the very core of what the gospel is about. First John chapter three, verse 11 says like this, for this is the message that you have heard from the what? It didn't just start last week. It didn't start on Instagram. It didn't start on Twitter. It started back in the Bible years and years and years ago that we should love one another. We should not be like Cain who was of the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil and his brothers were righteous. Do not be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you. That's a t-shirt right there. Don't be surprised that people hate you. I think that's the t-shirt we should get for our next big movement next year. Like next year, our movement, this year is revive. Next year, hated. I don't speak one week and there's a lot going on in this brain, okay? So... Verse 14, we know that we have passed out of death into life because we love our brothers, the brothers. Whoever does not love, what's that saying? Abides in death. Wow. Wow. Love's pretty important. As far as God's concerned, it's the connection and central theme to everything that he's about. So what does love look like? And being that we have messed it so much up in the, in the church world, and as adults, we've messed it up, I figure let's go find a definition from somebody else. Maybe somebody that hasn't had the time to mess it up yet. Kids. This is how they see love. When my grandmother got arthritis, she couldn't bend over and paint her toenails anymore. So my grandfather does it for her all the time, even when his hands got arthritis too. That's love. Love is when a girl puts on perfume and a boy puts on shaving cologne. And they go out and smell each other. I'm tracking. This is, this is beneficial to me. Love is when mommy makes coffee for daddy and she takes a sip before giving it to him to make sure the taste is okay. I do that every morning for my wife. Love is when you kiss all the time. And then when you get tired of kissing, you still want to be together and talk more. My mommy and daddy look like that, and it's gross. (laughs) 
Love is when you tell the guy you like his shirt, that you like his shirt, and then he wears it every day after that. <laughs> Love is like a little old woman and a little old man who are still friends, even after they know each other so well. Love is when your puppy licks your face, even when you left him home all alone, all day long. You really shouldn't say, I love you. This is what one little girl said, unless you mean it. But if you mean it, you should say it a lot because people forget. Man, that's good. Maybe we should listen to some of those things and the attitude behind some of those. You know, the Bible has a definition of love too. The Bible has a definition found in 1 John chapter 3, verse 16, and it says this, by this, we know love. We don't have to guess about it. We don't have to think through it. We don't have to come up with our own philosophy. It's right here. By this, we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers. But if anyone has the world's good and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. Something happened before first service, and it'll go down as one of the, just the neatest little God moments I've ever had. There was somebody actually this past week that I've been praying for. I've been praying. I haven't seen them since before COVID. I was praying for them. And I was like, I've, I've tried to message them and no response. And I was sitting there and I was talking to two other friends. We were talking about golf and we were just kind of hanging out. And they were asking about my turkey hunt in Washington State. And I was, you know, just sitting over there. We're just having a good time. And all of a sudden this guy comes walking by. And I said to one of my friends, I said, I know you don't know who Andy is, but it looks, that guy walks like Andy. Now, he's facing the other direction, but he just walked, he just looked like this guy, Andy. I know he's just walking like Andy. And then he walks all the way. We're sitting over by the ramp over here and he walks all the way by the, over where the, or the coffee is. And I'm like, that looks, that, that, he's walk, he's walking like Andy. Well, then finally, after making his coffee, he turns around and he starts walking between me. And I, I waved to him and it was Andy. And I'm sitting there, Andy, how do you look? You lost so much weight. You look fantastic. I said, I just said to my two friends here, that looks like I I could tell your walk. I knew it was your walk. and, And it dawned on me. I knew Andy by his walk. The world will know that we're Jesus's by our walk. How we respond out there, how we act, what we look like, what we say, how we respond when people come against us. The world will know us by our walk. And if we're not walking the way God's... We're going to shun people away from Jesus. We say it all the time around this place. Our job is to make Jesus famous. But unfortunately, I think that a lot of people look at the church and we've made him everything else but that. So what can we do? I think there's a couple of things that we can look at. Here's the first thing. I think if we would define love and define it properly, this is how we would respond. Love treats people as equals. Every person. We treat people, we need to, see, if there's ever been, we need to recalculate to treat everyone as equals, even those who don't believe like me. So a guy walks up to me last week. It was after, uh, it was after Easter service. He walks up to me, he goes, he goes, hey, I'm gonna ask you a question. I know the answer already. I'm like, well, you may not. He goes, I know the answer already. Pre-trib, right? Like, what? He's a pre-tribulation, right? You're pre, I mean, every good Christian's pre-tribulation. Some of you are looking at me like a deer in headlights. At some point, Jesus is coming back. We good on that? And I'll say it like this. Alan Runner, our executive pastor, does a phenomenal job of explaining this every time we do partnership. We talk about there's some things that we hold tight to, and there's some things we're loose to. Some things we absolutely, Jesus Christ without a shadow of doubt is the only way a person can get to heaven. Somebody say amen. That's it, right? There's no other way. We believe that by birth and by choice, men and women are sinful. Amen? Like, I don't have to, you know, you're, you start out like, I st- like all that, right? Like, I can do a test. How many people have sinned today? Everybody should raise their hand. Right? Okay. Uh, I, we, that, that, that God and, you know, God is who, and there's a place, we can, but there's some things that we don't get. So when he said that you're a pre, he was assuming that I was a pre. Please do not assume anything about me. Unless you've had a conversation with a cup of coffee in front of us, you don't know me. You don't know me from up here. You don't know who I am. You don't know how I respond in crisis. You don't know whether I'm a Republican or Democrat. You don't know those things because they're none of your business. The one thing you will know about me is I love Jesus Christ with everything in me, heart, mind, soul, and strength. So he said, you're pre-trib. I, no, 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 no. And I said, well, you know, what about, what about all my, my, my pre-trib, my, I mean, my mid-trib friends? 
He's like, whoa, you're not even a real Jesus follower if you're a mid-tribber. And I said, well, what about, what about post-tribulation? Trib is tribulation. I apologize. That's at the end times, there's going to be a tribulation. Some people say three, six, 10, 42, like, I mean, so I said, open hand, right? I said, I, I have a new one I'll throw out to you. Why don't you research this one? I said, I'm a pan-tribulation guy. Oh my gosh. I said, it's all going to pan out the way God wants it to pan out. Right? Pan-tribulation. How about if they don't agree with you? Do you want to know something? Because here's what I believe with everything that's in me. We often think that the greatest obstacle to love is hate. But there's so many things far worse. Pride is worse. Arrogance is when we think we're better than somebody else. Whenever we put ourselves, elevate ourselves, because I read the Bible this way, or I have fallen for this movement, or I read it, you know, or I study this way, or if you're not doing this version, like if you don't do King James, you're not a real, and all of a sudden we're way up here and everybody else is way down there. Here's what I've learned. It's not when you engage with people. Because you want to know something? We're going to engage with people. We're going to have people that we, we differ from. There's even, you want to know the honest to God truth? I don't always agree with me sometimes. If you're in my, if ever come to my office, there's sometimes I'll just say something, I'll, you know, I'll blurt something out. And 10 minutes later, I go like, that was dumb. Like, whose idea was that? And they're all like, even, so, so it's not a matter if you're going to engage, because you're going to engage with people. They're, they're, listen, Republican, Democrat, Black Lives Matter, Blue Lives Matter, you know, this is happening in this world, you know, Rovers, like, you're going to engage. It's not when you engage, it's how you engage. It's how you respond to people. Do we treat people with dignity that, that are different than us? Do we treat them as equals? In, in the Roman Empire, what would happen is a lot of times they would be in those chariots and it would be, a, you know, a warrior that was out there, a captain or, a, you know, a military leader and he would go out there. But they always had a slave that was in that, that chariot with them. And the slave would whisper things. I was always wondering what they were whispering. You see it in some of the shows. They would whisper. And what they were saying to that person is, don't forget that you're also mortal. Like you're a human being. And you know what I think we've lost? That the person that we're engaging with is a human being. Just because they're different than us, they look different, they act different, doesn't mean that Jesus loves them any less. I want to make a bold statement. You will never, ever, ever look in the eyes of somebody that Jesus didn't die for. Take that one for a minute. You'll never, ever, ever. C.S. Lewis said it like this. A proud man is always looking down on things and people. And of course, as long as you're looking down, you can't see something that's above you. Galatians chapter three says, for in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you have been baptized in Christ, have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Gentile. There's neither slave. There's no free. There's no male. There's no female. For all are one in Christ. Y'all hear that? We're all one in Christ. This is how it works for every one of us. He reaches down in our sinful state, in our depravity, in all our struggles, and all the things we carry, he reaches down and he finds us. Amen? He finds us. Regardless of how far down, he finds us. And then it's our responsibility to reach across. He reaches down and we reach across. And here's what I've learned. Everyone, everyone has the same story. So when I was a youth pastor, long time ago, it was 1991, 92, we were reaching some of the kids that were at Lakeside High School in Evans that were far from Christ. And they didn't look like the church, like any other church kids. They were long haired and tattoos and they were the ones that nobody else would talk to. Nobody sat there. And we decided that our ministry was going to try to reach out to those kids. So it was one kid, his name was Nick. And Nick had real long hair and he was just a wild kid. Like we knew he was doing drugs and we probably dealing in the school. And he just looked like your typical person that nobody would want to hang out with. And I remember not because our team would go sit with him and we would sit with him at lunch. And little by little, he would ask like, so why are you sitting with me? And it was like, oh my gosh, I'm going to have to say the Jesus thing now. And so we're sitting there and I was like, hey, I'm sitting with you because I think you have value to God. 
And he said, you know, you don't even know my story. And I said, well, let me tell you my story first. I said, I grew up in a household that was not a church going household. Um, I got into some things that I shouldn't have got into. Um, I'm not, I'm not proud of it. I did some things I shouldn't have done. And I said, but I was in a moment in my life and Jesus rescued me in 1983, just rescued me right where I was at in the midst of all my crazy. Anybody else have that same kind of story? Like in the midst of all your craziness, Jesus just dumped down and rescued you. That was me. And so I was literally, I was literally, I was really high when I asked Jesus and it stuck by the way. I mean, I'm still good. I'm still saved, but I was literally high when I asked Jesus to be my savior. And so it was one of those things I was sharing the story with him. He goes, hey, would you come over to the house one day? He said, I've never read a Bible. I don't know. Can we just talk? So I get into his house. And when I get into his house, it's beer bottles and beer cans and liquor bottles and liquor. And there's drug paraphernalia all over the place. And we go to sit at his table and he has to push everything aside. All the cans, all the drug paraphernalia. I'm like, this is fantastic. So we start going through scripture. And I read him one of my favorite passages of scripture in Romans where God came another way. And the way salvation was through faith, not through works. And he goes, I am a mess. I was like, wow. And you know, I thought, honestly, we're gonna pray this prayer and I'll never see him again because it's not gonna stick because this kid is a drug addict. I talked to Nick not too long ago. He's, he's a Christian psychologist. He's helping kids like himself and like myself get their crap together and get in right standing with Jesus Christ. See, we all have the same story. We all end up, need to end up at the same place where we need the saving grace of Jesus Christ. Amen? All right, so here's another one. Love is shown by our compassion. Here, here, let me give you a working definition. Definition is living inside somebody else's skin. You may not understand it. You may not get it all, but you're living inside somebody else's skin. You, you are recognizing their hurt. You're recognizing their struggles. You're recognizing the pain that they have. And, you, and, and compassion, compassion means you do something about it. There's a couple of times that Jesus, Jesus had compassion when he came up on Martha and Mary and Lazarus was dead. And Jesus had compassion, the feeding of the 5,000. And both of those times, he, he was inside. He was understanding the need. That's what compassion does. Loving others means that we can't sit still. We can't rest. We can't be silent as long as somebody is in need, then we see, and we have the, the ability to do something about it. First John three seventeen says, but if anyone has the world's good and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Can, can I throw something out? And I, I don't know. We can't solve all the world's problems. And, and I, when I first got in the ministry, I wanted to solve every problem. When we started journey, I wanted to solve everybody's problem. Everybody that had a divorce situation, I wanted to counsel everybody and to the neglect of my family at, at times. I, we, we, we came in West Virginia. We got three, three trips to West Virginia this year. We got a trip to Miami. We're going to Dominican Republic. We can't solve, but you, we can solve a couple of the problems. We can solve a couple of problems in West Virginia. We can solve a couple in Miami. We can solve a couple in Dominican Republic. We should never sit still seeing that there's a need and not try to do something about it. Compassion says when someone else is hurting, I refuse to look the other way. See, I, I, I want you to write this down because I think this is, the, the, we, we've got to get to this. The recalculation, we've got to get to this. The true measure of a man is how he treats someone who can do him absolutely no good. It's when I do something for somebody that they can't do something back in return. That's the true measure of a man or a woman. When they do that right there, one of my favorite stories, uh, uh, reading a book when I was on my sabbatical about um, Catholic priests and what it meant to be a Catholic priest, not because I'm becoming a Catholic priest. I just, could you imagine that? <laughs> uh, just because I want to know how other people do it. I want to know what, what's going through other people's minds. Why did, they, why did they sell out for Jesus in a way that's different than the way I sold out? But there was one, one, one story of a guy named Father Damien. And Father Damien was, felt compelled off the coast of Hawaii um, to Malika, and it's a leper's colony. And they would send all the lepers over there and thousands upon thousands upon thousands. And he would preach to them. And he said he was, a li he was living as best as he could. As a, you know, he was in with that group. He started schools there and bands and choirs, uh, did all kinds of things to make sure that they died with dignity. He hand-built 2,000 coffins because he felt like every person that died should die with dignity, that they should be laid to rest properly. 
he got close to the people that he loved. And I think that's where we fail. We, we want to say we love, but we want to love from afar. We don't want to get there. We don't want to, we don't want to get with the lepers. We don't, want to, we don't want to get all the dirt of the world on us. Can I, can I let you in on a secret? This is not church. There's a t-shirt, I think, that we're going to be unveiling. And I don't remember the exact phrase. I saw it this morning at six o'clock when I walked in here. And I think it says something along the lines of the church has just left the building. See, it's not what we do in here that matters. It's what we do out there that matters. And this is why we do it. Because love is something you do because of what's been done. It's because he died for us. In the story of Father Damon, there's this part in his, his, of his last message he preaches. And he stands up and he says the most powerful statement he's ever made. He had lived with these people for, for a couple years. He'd hang out. He'd let them, you know, smoke his pipe. They, he, 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 you know, he washed, he bathed. He did all that stuff with these lepers that were dying. But he started this message, this moment, this time, with this phrase. We lepers. Because in the process of proximity, he contracted leprosy. He now had what they had. And it made me think. One day, God came to earth and he, became, he began his message with we lepers because he became one of us. He took our pain. He bore our scars. Everything that, that's ever happened, everything that will ever happen, he took at the cross. He became one of us. He did for us what we couldn't do for ourselves. And I'm so thankful over the years, at 56 years old, there's been a couple moments where God has allowed me to understand exactly what he did and how he did it that for a moment that I understood what the heavenly father did for me. One of the key moments was my kids were, my twins were seven or eight, or maybe they were five or six and Bethany was six or seven. But one of the things that we used to love to do was go to the lake. We would take my boat and we would ride around the lake and we would go on all our coves and Gina would make peanut butter and jelly sandwiches and watermelon and, and, it was the only time we really got to have sweets. And so we would treasure the moments where we got to have you know, candy corn or jelly beans or Whoppers. But we were out there one day and usually what would happen is we'd stay out. But about an hour before dark, I'd take him into a back cove and we would go fishing. My kids loved to fish and even taught them how to put a cricket on and throw the bait and we would catch one day we're sitting there, I'm in the front of the boat and I hear this blood curdling scream and I knew it, it was Bethany. I didn't know what happened. I didn't know if a cricket went down her shirt. I didn't, I didn't know. I turned around and she is sobbing. I'm talking about uncontrollable boogers everywhere. And I said, baby, what happened? And she said, I dropped Polly Pocket in the water and I watched her go all the way down. And it was that moment as a dad, I wanted to come to her rescue. I looked at my depth finder and we were in 50 feet of water. There is no way I'm finding Polly Pocket. That answers all the reasons she is the way she is right now, by the way. <laughs> but there was nothing I could do. See, that's where the similarities end because I wanted to do everything I could possibly do. I wanted to be the knight in shining armor. But see, what I can't do, the heavenly father can do. He can come to our rescue. Today is Mother's Day. And I recognize that we're celebrating moms. And if you're a mom, we're thankful. We really are. And I love what Alan said, and so true, we would not be here if it wasn't for you. But there's also, there's also people in this room right now that Mother's Day is not a great day. Maybe you lost your mom. Maybe you were never able to have kids. And there's hurt and pain and, and it's real. I can't dive to the bottom. And I, every fishing tournament I go up and fish, I go through the Modoc and I go where Polly Pocket is. 
And there's a part of me that's still heartbroken. But what I've learned about the Heavenly Father is that every time we've dropped our Polly Pocket in the water, He's been able to rescue us. It may not be the way we want it rescued, but He's rescued us. Our marriages, our struggles with our kids, aging parents. Whatever your hurt, whatever your pain is, God can reach down into that circumstance, in that situation. And what a heavenly father can do, we've tried to equate to what an earthly father could do, and there's no parallels. I have not seen nor ear heard or entered the hearts of men what God has in store for us because he's a loving father. Recalculate. We love because he first loved us. That's what 1 John says. Let's pray. God, I, I don't know where every person's at. I don't know what circumstance are going on. I know this, that you are a heavenly father that loves us and cares about us. And I pray that regardless of the circumstance or situation, whether it's a, maybe today's not a great day for various reasons. God, would you just reach down to that situation? God, for some reason, maybe, Maybe we're here and we have heavy hearts. Maybe relational breakdowns are happening. God, can you somehow or another reach down and somehow or another come to our rescue? God, would you do something for us that we can't do for ourselves? God, would you be big in circumstances? Exceedingly abundantly above all we can ask or imagine. Can you, can you do that, God? That, that you who began a good work in us, you are able to complete it. That's what we stand in. We believe. So God, I don't know. There's hundreds of different circumstances. You know everyone. God, I pray that you would be big in those. In Jesus' name we pray. And everyone said, amen. Amen. Thanks again for listening today. If you need prayer or want to talk to someone about taking your next step, email us at nextsteps at journeycommunity.net.